0: Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to be talking about picking the right power supply for your desktop computer. A lot of people get this wrong. We're going to give you all the tips and things to look for in this episode. Then we head to Camera Corner where Wendy will discuss getting started in flash photography. So sit back. Relax and plug in, because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael. Are you bringing something to the table this
1: week? I am. I got a Wacom pen. Nice. Wacom? Wacom. Wacom. Sure. Wacom. Wacom. I never Wacom. know. Wacom. I'll go with Wacom. It's called Bamboo Ink or something like that, and it's obviously not made out of bamboo. I don't know why they call it that, but whatever. So my laptop that I got, we talked about in a previous episode, which is the HP Envy 360, has touch features, but it also has stylus support. I used, it to, I used the pen on the laptop to do some stuff in Krita for some some painting and drawing and that sort of stuff just to play around with it and see what all I could do with it. And it's fantastic. I mean, it's so sensitive to, you know, use it in the way that you want. It doesn't even need to have it touch the screen. So you can see the mouse moving with it with like you're probably like half an inch away from it. It can still detect that you're close enough and then you move it around. And then, but, but the best thing about it is that with this combination of this laptop and this pen, it has pin, uh, pressure sensitivity. So I can, you know, be m- way more precise with my drawings. And it was just really cool to play with. And I have started doing some more uh, artistic stuff with it. I used to just sketch it out on paper and then scan it to turn it into a digital thing. And now I can do it directly on the laptop, which is just awesome.
2: And that is probably one of the coolest things about these that have the pressure sensitivity is because it can affect the lightness or darkness of your line. It can affect the width of lines. It is really cool Mm -hmm. to have that technology built into these graphics tablets, graphics pens, utilities, hardware.
0: Wacom is not officially the pen that comes with HP they have their own HP pens and things that you can buy but you bought this Wacom did you know it was compatible or did you just take a risk that it was or was it because you knew that the specs
1: on your laptop had the
0: Wacom compatibility listed
1: so you would think that based on being on this 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 show and the experience I have to talk to you about things um, that I would have tested it and no I did not That's awesome, though. (laughs) You got a good surprise. Congratulations. It worked. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, Yeah, it worked great. And I I kind of expected because uh, Wacom has pretty solid support with, you know, various different laptops and stuff. And also, it's kind of like the go-to for the drawing tablets that are specifically for, like, the ones that are not screens. They're just drawing tablets. They're, like, the go-tos for that. Uh, so I just assumed that the the support would be pretty good. It's even really great on Linux. Like I saw no issues with the comf- the the configurations or the pressure sensitivity or any of that stuff. So it works. It worked out of the box as soon as I hooked it up and it was good to go. So that was awesome. It also uses a quadru- a quadruple A batteries, which are something I'd hardly ever see, but is a thing.
0: It is a thing specifically in these pens. The HP's official pen also uses the quadruple A battery, which is very weird and difficult to find in your general store. But it seems to be the go-to battery for these type of devices there. So when you're looking at drawing, though, a lot of people have an issue transitioning into digital drawing. So the idea behind the pen is it's going to recreate that same feeling or close to it that you would have with a pencil or a paintbrush or something along those lines but you've got this tablet form factor you're drawing on a glass surface do you think there's going to be a long learning period for you to transition or did you find yourself picking it up pretty quickly
1: that's a fantastic question and it is a learning barrier there is a learning curve for sure i was like when with doing paper it's way more natural feeling like the drawing and sketching it just comes off instantly Whereas this, you kind of have to get used to how much pressure you need to apply and you have to switch the right tools to do the, the to, to the pressure on like the, the, you know, the brush tool versus the pen tool has a different pressure sensitivity or requirement depending on the application. So it's just, you got to get used to all of those things. And once you do, like I've gotten used to a little bit of it so I could do more uh, precise art now, but it's only been about a week or so since I've had it. So I still needed uh, a lot more time to test it out and try it out to see how far I can go to it. But I always will um, expect that the comparison between paper and just sketching versus digital. Digital saves time in not having to scan it and and vectorize it and all that stuff. But it is never going to be as smooth, in my opinion. Even on... No matter how the technology advances from now on, but just the experience here. When I tried it, it was really cool and it flowed well, but it didn't have the feel of just drawing on paper with a pen or pencil. It's not going to be a replacement necessarily, but it is a nice alternative for that. You know, if I want to do something that's in a, it's, it's purposely for digital work, then this fa- sounds like a fantastic approach to doing it. So I will continue to experience it and try if I can you know, optimize the flow and all that. But it's not going to be a 100% replacement to sketching, because if I want to do something really quickly, it's never going to be that, you know, it's never going to be able to replace that feeling of sketching.
2: My daughter agrees with that. She does a lot of artwork, both with the physical media and on tablets, computers, and the like. And one of the things that she mentioned and how you don't have that same feeling is because your paper has texture and the kind of paper you choose has different textures. And even though you can choose different papers digitally, you don't have that same feedback in the way the drawing tool you're using interacts with the paper itself. So she loves it. She loves all of the medias, but agrees that it won't ever be exactly the same.
0: I wonder if they can't potentially create that feeling at some point. I know it's not there now. But when I think about the iPhone and its fingerprint detection tool that is not a button anymore, using the slight vibrations of motors, they're able to replicate the feeling that you're actually pushing a button. And it feels like you're literally pushing a button. Like you're staring at the phone at different angles. Like, where's the button? I know there's a button. But it's literally just... Motor is vibrating at just a slight enough frequency to give you that feeling that you're pushing a button. And I wonder if that's something, because I'm sure Wacom gets this feedback and others consistently that it's not that same feel of using different papers or different utensils. If some of the vibrations of motors and things that they can eventually integrate into these couldn't help recreate that, not that it would be perfect, but it'd be pretty darn close potentially.
1: Well, I've seen like there's a lot of great art that can be done with these things, and it does take some time to develop that skill with these. And there is a lot of value in using these tools because you can you have so much more flexibility, you know, with the sketching. If you're just going to do something really quick, then sketching on paper is way better. But if you're going to do something that's going to take a long time and you're going to have to do different variations and different uh, modeling for the different uh, like logos, for example, if you have to have multiples uh, variations for those things, doing a digital version is a lot easier to be able to have all of these different modifications and still have that base stuff. Whereas you're doing like actual paper, it requires you to do, do it every single time, draw it a completely different way from scratch. So there is a ton of value I see in regards to why these are popular and why Wacom is such a big name in terms of this industry. But the thing that I was talking about is more like if I'm going to sketch something and I just have an idea in my head and I want to you know, see what it looks like once I you know, put it to paper, doing that is easier on paper because it's just so much faster. And the sensitivity of these pens is not enough to, for my particular style, this is not true for everybody. It depends on their their artistic style, but I'm a very light sketcher. And when I tried to do the light sketching on the screen, it just couldn't really pick it up very well. So I had to put more pressure in it and to make it even register. So it wouldn't flow well for me until I give it a significant amount of time to get used to the difference between having to adjust my sketch style. Got it. Well, we'll look forward to seeing maybe some of your art in the future you produce
0: with it. Maybe you could post some up on the forums there for people to check out. But Wendy, what have you been up to in the hardware world?
2: I've decided that it's probably time to step up my audio game just a little bit. I've talked about the fact that my room is a multiple purpose. So actually doing the work in this room to make it sound better is a little bit more difficult just because of everything that it's used for. So I was looking for a way to kind of help with that, and I found this Array ISO Armor 2 Microphone Isolation Chamber. And it's kind of funky looking, because it's almost like this box that you set over your microphone, and it kind of mimics being able to be in a sound booth in how it guards your microphone From the additional room noises, that bounce back sound, and it has a really cool pop filter in front of it as well. I haven't ordered this one yet, I'm still doing just a little bit more research on it. I showed it to Michael ahead of time, I think it was yesterday or the day before, yesterday. And the reviews I've seen on it so far look really good, but I want to do just a little bit more digging before ordering this one, but it's kind of the one on the top of that purchase list. So this is a
0: really important piece of equipment, especially when you're doing podcasting and things and you're in rooms that have wood or tile, this is a big deal. If you have carpet, it's less of an issue. But of course the thinness of your walls, the type of walls, but you've got sound bouncing all over the place. It can definitely detract from your voice and detract the listeners and everything else. So this is going to create an isolation chamber for your microphone, completely surrounds it without having to do any treatments to your wall. So you don't have to put sound panels up, sound dampeners, those type of things. I have one of these devices. The problem I had is I have a video podcast and it's too big. It's huge. And so on a video podcast, it just wouldn't work because it would cover my entire face. But The idea behind the isolation chamber around your microphone is a brilliant one. And the times that I did test it, it worked perfectly. I had to go with a different solution because of the video aspect. But I can send you the one I have, Wendy, and save you some money on that. Because I have one that's not being used, but these are pretty cool little devices here.
2: I would absolutely love that. And then I could give everybody else a second review on it from a multi-purpose room, I have never heard your kids, and some of that is the other audio hardware that you've got on board. But occasionally, my kids can be heard through the microphone, and that's one of those things I want to be able to stop. And then we live right next to a warehouse, so sometimes there's trucks driving by and all kinds of stuff happening. And it would be nice to eliminate that sound. Yeah, when I'm doing the editing for Linux out loud, I will mute all of the spaces where I'm not talking But it would be just one more step to increase the audio production of the two podcasts that I'm on.
0: Very nice. Well, I will get one sent your way and then you'll have to let us know when you get it, how you like it on Hardware Addicts.
2: Perfect. I'm not the only one having fun with sound. You've got another set of headphones going on. How are these ones?
0: I have an addiction to headphones. I have an addiction to hardware, but I specifically have an addiction to headphones. Yeah, I know. It's weird. (laughs) I guess you could say I have an addiction to every piece of equipment, but I buy a lot of different headphones. I just love them all in some way or love to hear the different sounds out there. But one of the issues that I've been running into is really zoning in at the gym. And there's a lot of distractions that comes with going to a public gym, people doing dumb things with their phone on Instagram or the music that's already playing in the gym and so sound isolation is very important being able to do noise canceling and that type of stuff adaptively
1: are you telling me you you don't crossfit selfie
0: no crossfit selfie <laughs> although there appears to be like a growing generation of people who simply go to the gym do like two reps of 20 pounds and then snap 80 pictures that seems to be like the big thing now at gyms but i was i have in-ear headphones which i act. Absolutely love. The Jobber 85Ts are my favorite in-ear workout headphones out there, but I wanted something that was over the ear, and The Rock, the wrestler The Rock, has a new line under Under Armour called Project Rock, and he's got a whole series of clothing and workout gloves and all that, but then I saw he had some headphones. And they look dope they got the rock bull on them you know they have a really cool under armor of course logo on they look really really nice and the idea behind these is that you've got the ipx4 water resistant materials they're supposed to help with the sweat because the over the ear headphones one of the big problems with them when you're working out is if you have those leather pads or leather pads that they have they get really hot they can increase your temperature they don't feel comfortable They can Mm -hmm. fall off if they're not too tight, but if they're too tight, then they're uncomfortable as well. So you've got a big bunch of issues with an over-the-ear headphone and a gym, and what these are attempting to do is kind of compensate for all of those things. You actually have physical buttons everywhere. None of this touch control crap, which is fantastic. (laughs) That's like one of my favorite things they implemented here because things are going to hit your headphones at the gym. accident you're gonna rub them against the the seat the cushions or your hands going up or motion that you're Mm -hmm. doing accidentally touch them so physical buttons that's one of my favorite things on here adaptive noise canceling so you have several settings you have the hear through you have the ability if someone comes up to annoy you while at the gym to hit a button so that the music stops and you can hear them through the headphones you can take calls on these of course They're water-resistant, and the ear pads themselves are washable, so you can pull them off and throw them into the washer and wash those. That's super
1: important for this.
2: Yeah, because how do they feel as far as heat-wise? Because washability, that's amazing when it comes to headphones like this because you do sweat a lot, but do you feel like you're getting too hot when they're on? If you go to take them off, do you feel like your ears are just been sitting in an oven or... Do they actually breathe pretty good?
0: They're not as bad as every other headphone I've tried. Meaning, like, all of the Beats and other things that I've tried at a gym, absolutely just, you feel like your ears are in an oven when you take them off, 100%. These have, and I'll do a video review on my channel with them as well, these have nice holes all the way through to try to create some kind of airflow and distance between your actual ear and the cushions themselves. But you do feel a little warmer than you would if you were using an in-ear headphone. So it's taken some getting used to, but certainly not as bad as any other of the headphones that I use. The other thing that's a requirement for me is I need fast charging because I don't bring my headphones into my home. I expect to use them in the gym. So I actually, in my car, I have a USB charging port and then that's connected into my headphones and then I throw my headphones from there into my gym bag that sits on the passenger side. And so it has, from the time I leave to go to the gym, which is about a 12 minute drive, to fully charge itself and then the 12 minute drive back and at the gym I'll be there about an hour, 20 minutes, something like that. And this has been able to stay fully powered through all of that. So it can charge itself enough to stay completely charged for all of my workouts and then I don't have to try to charge it separately or bring it into the home and charge it and then forget them on my way to the gym and that type of thing because it has a 45 hour battery life with speed charge built in. The sound is by JBL, that's the ultimate maker of the headphones here. The sound profile is good. It's not the best sounding headphones I've ever put on my head by far or any stretch of the imagination. I wish they were slightly louder than they are, but they're loud enough to block out most of the noise of gym uh, that you're going to, to hear, even in, including the music that they're playing over it. I like a little more loudness because, you know, I'm one of those people who want to really jam out in the gym, but the sound quality is decent, the bass is decent, probably more on par with like a Beats headphone as far as more emphasis on the lows uh, and a little less in the highs. Uh, But overall, pretty solid headphones. So I'll do a review on these on my channel. But if you're looking for something by The Rock, blood, sweat, respect, with some pretty cool logo, check out the Under Armour Project Rock over-ear headphones.
1: Yeah, these look pretty cool. And I I would assume that if The Rock is going to be using these or promoting these, I would assume he's using them, right? But this is like the idea of having headphones specifically for this purpose. You would think that there's there's multiples, but I, this is the first I've ever heard of anybody making over-the-ear, comfortable headphones for working out.
0: That are washable. That's the yeah, big one. the washable
1: yeah. part. Wow.
2: I need you to repeat the battery life on these for me because I don't think I heard you right.
0: It is 45 hours of battery with speed charge. And they can charge- that is
2: crazy.
0: In just five minutes. You can get two hours of charge every five minutes. So that's why once I charge them once, I've been able to maintain- these at full charge by just the 12-minute drive to the gym.
1: I'm definitely looking forward to this review because I want to know more about these for sure. Me too. And something everyone should want to know more about is DigitalOcean. This episode of Hardware Addicts is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, Storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams at regardless of their size, whether you have a team of one or a team of a thousand people, DigitalOcean can help you and your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. And as a listener of the Hardware Addicts podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. So in the main
0: story this week, I wanted to talk about power supplies because this component of your PC build is often overlooked in many people's computers. I see this happen all the time, especially with those individuals who are upgrading PCs that they had pre-built. But they don't even think about when they're putting a new motherboard or GPU or anything inside that the power supply that came with their pre-built may not be powerful enough to be able to power these new components that they're putting inside. And then when they go and they look for a new power supply when they're doing a build everything else may be starting to really add up. And when they look at the power supply they're like, "Yeah, just go cheap on this one. Let me just grab... Whatever there is, the right price. But the power supply is so important to your build. This can create bottlenecks in your performance. So, just because your machine is running and operating and isn't just powering itself off randomly, doesn't mean you're actually supplying the appropriate amount of power to your, say, your GPU and other things so that you can actually drive them to the performance that they can reach. So that's one thing to keep in mind, is even if your machine's working, you still may have an underpowered power supply. Also, a bad power supply can fry your components. It can underpower your equipment, as we talked about, and it can cost you a lot of extra money on your electric bill. And if it goes bad, it can cause some serious issues in not only spending lots of money trying to pay somebody to diagnose what's happening with your machine, because a lot of times power supply issues the random ones especially, can be really hard for you to diagnose. This is a piece of equipment that you really want to take your time with and get the right power supply for your build. So this episode is for you if you are in the market for building or upgrading your machine, because we're going to get into what you need to look for in a power supply. So all of this stuff that I mentioned, I'll ask you, Michael, when you were looking for a good power supply, did you do the right research on this? Did you really look into it or did you just go name brand?
1: Okay. So when I was looking for I have a different I have an interesting story, I think. I've gotten uh, multiple power supplies over the years and I purchased a power supply that I thought was really good. And at the time, it was. But I had no justification for that at all. It was a guess because the name of the com- the brand was sound familiar and I'd heard it before and then I got it and it worked fine and then it turns out it was a good brand as I later found out when I was talking to Ryan however when I was upgrading my CPU and my GPU at the time he asked me what power supply it was and then you said yeah that's not enough like cuz I had like a 650 and yeah. it and it was just wasn't enough it could it could power it but then it would be bottleneck like you said i did pick a good brand on my own i didn't pick it for the like future proofing of it because i bought it for it it was like it was plenty for what i was using it on but once i upgraded it was nowhere near enough so i guess kind of both that happens a lot to people though
0: you you'll get individuals who will buy a power supply that works great the wattage that they need for their current system but then they have plans to upgrade and they don't consider that in their upgrade costs. So they end up underpowering or end up feeling, again, that they have bad components or the GPU isn't working and sending components back to the manufacturer because they think things are broken when they're really not. You just don't have enough power to actually drive the thing. There's all kinds of issues it can create. So I guess if you get nothing else out of this episode, make sure you're really taking your time to consider your power supply when you're doing an upgrade and you talked about power. And the first thing to consider is how much wattage you're going to need to drive all of the components that you're going to be installing. And the way you can do this is to manually calculate your requirements by taking all the components and multiplying their total amps by their total volts. And you can see that in the specs of everything you buy. You see it in an SSD. You can see it in the CD-ROM drive, in your motherboard. You'll have those specs there if it's a good manufacturer for those things. But there's a much better way
1: Good. I didn't do any of that stuff, so I'm glad there is a better way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And most people, it's like math. I don't want to do math. So you could go to Newegg or Cooler Master, and on their site, they actually have calculators made for this. And all you do is drop down the components that you plan on purchasing, and it will tell you the type of power supply or how much wattage that you're going to need for that. But you've gotta keep in mind that anytime you're doing some extras, like if you're gonna add extra SSDs, if you're gonna add extra Blu-ray drives into your machine, if you're gonna add more RAM, new coolers, these can all be draws. So you don't wanna be right on the edge. You don't wanna look and see, oh, I need 600 watts, and then go buy a 600-watt power supply. If that's your only option because of money or whatever, okay, but just keep in mind that if you add anything else to this machine, you might start getting into some issues there. So you want to go over the wattage that you typically think you need as much as your budget will allow you. So if you need 600, try to go 8 or 850, and that will give you some room for upgrades in the future, again, if it's within your budget.
1: You don't want to be you know turned down for watts.
0: The dad joke. It had to happen.
2: Yes, it absolutely had to happen. Another fantastic way yeah. to do this is through PC Part Picker. A lot of people like to kind of build their computers through this website and they do calculate a lot of that information for you. So when I was trying to figure out what UPS I wanted, one of the ways that I did that is I went back to PC Part Picker. You can add all of the fans that you're putting into the system because believe it or not, every single fan you add does affect that overall wattage you need And I have five case fans running in my system and I was kind of playing around with it. I didn't have my case fans in there in the very beginning when I was looking at my wattage, added them in and we went up 20 watts.
0: Absolutely. You actually brought up a really good point that I missed. These extra fans that you're putting in, especially some of these high performance fans, they're meant to go really fast and be very quiet, can pull... Lots of additional wattage as well, so something to absolutely consider when you're looking at your power supply there. And it's not just wattage, though. Another thing that you need to look at is the rails.
1: Yeah. You never want to go off the rails.
0: Don't want to go off the... Michael, that's two dad jokes <laughs> in just less than way five too close minutes. Together. Yeah, you're way welcome. too close together. Never go off the rails. You've got to you've got to pay attention to the rails that your power supply has, and make sure that it's capable and has the connections capable to power the specific components that you're putting in your machine. So, for instance,
1: hold on, one second. I, I would like to ask a question for those who are um, not aware and are in the same situation as myself. What are rails? What are you talking about? So, a power supply has the ability
0: to provide different levels or voltage values to different pieces of equipment. You have, if you look at a fully modular power supply on the back, you'll have things like 12 volt, 5 volt, 3.3 volt connection cables that you can put and connect into that to power different components within your computer system in order to supply that appropriate power there.
2: Another thing you need to think about with that is how much storage do you have in this? How many drives are going to be in that? And where are they going to sit inside that system? There are some of them that only have one cable with connections for those different SATA drives, spinning rust, whatever you're using, and say you need to have more than one cable because of how they're going to be arranged inside of your system. I, in one... I would have enough connections for what I have, but in where they are spaced, if there wasn't two in this system, I wouldn't be able to make all the connections I need for the sheer amount of drives that I have built into my desktop.
0: And the good thing here is really when you're looking at this, you want to be able to look into the power supply specs, make sure that it has the connectors that you're gonna need. So you're gonna look at your video card, it's going to tell you the type of connectors that you need. You're going to look at your motherboard. It's going to tell you the type of connectors it needs. Most power supplies are going to be capable of providing that, especially when we get some of our later advice of brands to look at, especially modular. Now, if you're doing something a little special like SLI or Crossfire, you may not have the amount of connectors that you need on the back of your power supply to be able to provide that. What you can look for in that case is just a simple designation on the power supply specs that will say something like SLI ready or crossfire ready. And that would be something that you can look at if you don't want to calculate the amperage. But in general, the more connection options that you have, the better. And you can look on the back of these fully modular power supplies, which are the ones that I recommend. You're going to save money if you go with something that's not modular at all meaning you can't remove any of the cords. What's there is there, and that's what you're stuck with. And partially modular, again, you're gonna save money on it, but you're not gonna have as many options in the future if the connectors change with the new GPU or other motherboard that you get or something along those lines. If you go fully modular, generally you can look on the back and see how many different types of connections that that power supply provides. Usually when you're going fully modular, you're gonna have quite enough, especially if you have the wattage up there to supply it for a machine with the GPU, so you're up 600 watt plus. In general, when you're building a gaming machine or something like that. You're going to want to be above the 600 and the 800, 850. Things are getting even more power hungry. So I'll even look for a thousand if I can get away with it. And if you go that with fully modular, you're generally going to have enough connections for anything that you want in the future.
2: The other advantage of fully modular comes when you're putting your system together and just being able to manage your cables. It is amazing the difference in how much room you have without all of those extra cables hanging out. In the back of your computer that you now have to find a place for
1: going back to the story i talked about when i went from one uh, power supply to another one it wasn't just the wattage that was different it was also the fact that the one that i had originally and i didn't know what the modularity stuff was at the time it was completely not modular so all these massive amount of cables were as just sitting at the bottom of my case and then when i upgraded with uh, ryan's recommendation it was, uh, I think it was either fully modular or semi-modular. I'm not sure the, the total difference, but it was uh, It was just a completely different experience of like, i only had to put in the cables I wanted to use. And that is so much nicer as an experience just putting together a computer.
0: And when you look inside a power supply, and, and I do not recommend you do this because you could really hurt yourself with capacitors. But if you look online for pictures of inside of a power supply, that's the safe way to do it. You'll actually be able to see all of these different rails and the power that they're providing. So you'll be able to see like a five volt DC to DC PCB. You'll be able to see the different output for your 3.3 volt, your plus 12 volt, your MOSFETs that are in there and the voltage there, your capacitors. You'll be able to see all of this stuff inside. It's really an amazingly fascinating, awesome piece of equipment that I don't think gets enough respect out there in the hardware world. The other thing that you're going to want to look for is form factor, of course. Inside of your case, the type of case that you buy is going to determine in the motherboard that you have the form factor that you're going to want to pick up. For instance, I have a mini ITX build, and this particular case uses an SFX power supply inside of it. Now, there are also ATX power supplies. Those are your most common ones, but you're going to want to make sure the motherboard that you pick along with the case that you can support the form factor in there again pc part picker that wendy recommended is a really good option here because in general it's going to help you with that but i have seen it be wrong before with cases so you may want to just double check looking at your power supply specs themselves make sure it's the right form factor for the motherboard and case
1: i always go with sfx because i like special
0: effects ah nice that's not what it means michael And then power efficiency is the one that you'll see a lot of advertising around with these power supplies. So in addition to the wattage, you always want to get more than you need, but you want to consider the power efficiency of that because if you get a thousand watt power supply, but it's horribly rated in power efficiency, then you're going to be spending a lot more money on your electric bill. Most power supply manufacturers, you'll see an 80-plus rating. This is a certification that measures the efficiency. It is a third-party certification, so it's not one that companies can just kind of go out there and cheat on easily. It's done by an independent lab. If you're seeing an 80-plus rating, that means the power supply is at least 80% efficient at 20%, 50%, and 100% loads.
2: And this right now is the bottom. That is the minimum that you can get in the rating of a power supply.
0: Absolutely. Because you also have your 80 plus bronze, your 80 plus silver, your 80 plus gold, your 80 plus platinum, and your 80 plus titanium because we have to make everything confusing. Now, bronze rating is (laughs) going to give you 82% efficiency at full load which also means, though, that it's losing 18% of the original wattage just to heat. That means a 600-watt bronze-certified PSU with 82% efficiency will draw about 730 watts in order just to output that 600 watts that you need. So 80-plus is 80% efficiency, silver is 85, gold is 87, platinum is 90, titanium is 90 as well, but at 94% when it's at full load. The problem is that the more you go up in efficiency, the more you go up in price. So obviously, everybody would want a titanium, but the price of them makes them a lot less worth getting your money into because the amount of energy electric bills probably won't even offset the amount of more money that you would spend for a titanium. Again, depending on the brand and the time that you're looking at these type of things. In general, I generally try to find a gold or platinum I can usually find a pretty good deal on a the gold there, 87% efficiency.
2: This becomes even more important when you are talking about these small form factor PSUs because they are so much smaller. There's so much more room or so much less room to put these components into. So making sure that they are higher quality components is a very big deal. And you definitely don't want to skimp on your small form factor versions of this.
0: Yes, absolutely. In fact, I had real trouble finding a small form factor power supply that would provide 800 watts that wasn't going to completely break the bank, but eventually found a good deal at Micro Center there. But definitely one of the more expensive components because of the small form factor, you're going to pay for that uniqueness of that power supply there. And then you've got to look at protections that the power supply is providing itself and guarantees. You want clean energy flowing to your components and you want fault protection in case of surges to protect your components. Things like, you'll see features listed for power supplies like overvoltage protection. This is gonna shut down the power supply unit if the output voltage exceeds the limit, the voltage limits out there. Also, you'll see things like overload and overcurrent protection. These are circuits. Again, you look inside the power supply itself. These circuits protect the power supply and computer by shutting down when there's an excessive current or power load detected. So if there's a lightning strike, you get this overload of energy. Power supply may blow. These circuits may completely work and protect your system, but it may blow the power supply, but it's going to protect everything else like a surge protector outside of it if you have a really good power supply. And that means you're maybe spending a few hundred dollars to fix your machine instead of spending thousands replacing everything. So making sure your power supply has the appropriate amount of protections is important. But one of the big things, I think, one of the easiest things to remember in this is get a good brand power supply. For me, the most trusted brands, EVGA, is at the very top. If you can get an EVGA, if that's within your budget, always going to have a really good experience. I've always had a very good experience with EVGA. Corsair, Seasonic, Cooler Master also make really good power supplies out there. They're well known. Now, generally, we're not a show that's like, oh, you got to have the name brand thing. But this is one of those areas where I absolutely would go name brand because there's so many things they could do, like the protections inside and things that they could have all the other numbers look right or match the power supply, but have really cheap components inside. It could cost you a lot of money at the end of the day and there's just a lot more accountability with these brands here that you're going to see with a lot more people using them also you got to be really careful about fake reviews out there this is a big thing going on in the internet they've realized with amazon's popularity and everything else that people are shopping primarily on reviews so what they do is they hire people or they even send them out for free to a bunch of people for in exchange for a free review, five-star review, and all of these reviews can be fake. So you can't just go there and read reviews and use that as your only source of information. It's getting cheated a lot, and that's why, again, stick with a popular brand, look for the things that we're talking about here, then look at reviews and you'll probably be okay.
2: And if you want some reviews on these kind of things, one of the best places to go is the computer building community. Ask them what they're using, what they've thought about these different power supplies that you have an interest in. And that's where you're going to get the real world, hands-on, true reviews of those power supplies.
0: I think that's brilliant advice there. You can even go on to the Destination Linux forums. Ask people there their experience with certain power supplies. You know, in a lot of cases, a lot of companies come out, especially you see this in monitors, TVs, those type of things. And You've never heard the brand before, but they're good brands. They make a good product. But there's also a lot of companies out there that they only plan to be in the market for a short time. They get as many sales as they can and they shut down and move to something else. And with the power supply, it could really mess you up. But if you're using other people who are building computers all the time, have experience with this, techie geeks, like you said, Wendy, I think that's really good advice on if you have a question about the particular power supply that you're using, because it looks like you're using, Wendy, a power supply that I didn't list here, but is also a really well-known brand by Fractal.
2: Yes, I've been using this power supply now for almost two years. I've absolutely loved it. Of course, it is a fully modular power supply. And when I was looking for one, I was thinking a lot about the same things that we talked about right now. And some of that was upgradability. What do I need now to make my system run? And I knew when building this system that I eventually wanted to upgrade my GPU. Now, we all know that that hasn't happened yet because of a lot of other stuff we don't want to talk about. But I knew that this power supply, A, was platinum rated, B, had plenty of power for my current system, and would be able to handle the upgrade when I did it, plus modularity. Definitely love that for the way that I was able to do the wiring in the back. I hate doing cable management. It's probably one of my least favorite parts of system building, but it made it much easier. And then on top of all of that, I've never heard or rarely heard bad things about this brand, and it was just the perfect buy for me. I've loved my Fractal Designs power supply. I'd love to hear from anybody else if they had experience with this brand too.
1: That's interesting because I've, uh, I've never seen their, their power supplies, but I'm a big fan of their cases.
0: Yeah, and you're talking about a company that has something to lose with their reputation here, right? If they release a horrible power supply that ends up frying a bunch of machines. There's some accountability there with Fractal. So companies that produce other things are very popular in doing other things. Like I know Fractal from cases as well, definitely would be something that I would, if it met all the other requirements and you want to check with the community, if you're not sure in there, and then you're going to have not a bottleneck, but something that's going to rocket ship your machine and serve you for a really long time. Cause when you get a good power supply, they can last for decades.
2: Another trusted brand around here is Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentications, such as master passwords and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com to get started for free. If you're like me though, you're going to want to get that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that premium account? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage, and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash to get started for free. If you're like me, though, you're going to want to show your appreciation for this awesome service and get that premium edition that starts at just $10 per year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts.
0: All right, Wendy, take us into the camera corner and tell us about getting started in flash photography.
2: Now, this is going to be more of an overview of the hardware in getting started in flash photography and not necessarily how to use that, because those are two completely different realms of the discussion. But why would you want to use flash photography? One is if you want to stop motion. You can have that light set and your shutter speed set to a point where it freezes motion so cleanly. It's one thing that I love to do with food: you're sprinkling salt, you're drizzling oil, any of that stuff. You can stop it this one moment, this one second in time, and it's frozen.
0: That's really cool. So that's how they do like the sesame seeds dropping on the bun thing, you know, photos and stuff like that. Is using a flash and the shutter speed time perfectly, so it looks like they're. Falling but frozen without all the blurring and all that?
2: Exactly. You have to use flash for those applications. Say you just want a faster shutter speed in general. This is another reason where that would come in. Or you want to keep your ISO low. Remember that most cameras have a base sensitivity at 100. And as that number climbs, that sensor becomes more sensitive to light. The downside of that is you can get extra noise that's coming in because it's triggering or affecting in the way that, oh, we've got light here where we actually don't. And so you'll get that graininess or patchiness. And being able to use flash in creating your images help you keep that ISO lower, resulting in a cleaner image in general. We've talked before that you don't need to have the really, really expensive flashes. Yeah, Canon, Nikon, Sony... They make some incredibly expensive flashes. But you can go back to the previous episode where I've given you a recommendation for flash. Those are the ones that I personally have used. They've worked great for me in all kinds of different situations for flash photography. Now, are they going to overpower the sun? No, if you're planning on taking some images outdoors of people, especially if your light source is going to be really, really far away, these devices just aren't going to be able to do that. But if you're indoors, if you're going to be closer to your subject, this is a fantastic place to use these, I don't necessarily want to say cheaper flashes, but more budget-friendly flashes. One of the things you have to do look out for on the budget-friendly flashes is you're going to go through batteries a bit faster than you will on the really, really high-end So if you're using these constantly all the time, it might be one of those cases where you decide to go ahead and get the more expensive one because you're not going to be spending so much money in replacing batteries.
0: It's kind of a shame we can't overpower the sun because I'd like to pay it back for the times it blinds me when I'm driving. The battery thing that you mentioned with the flashes is interesting because you could just get rechargeable batteries. But even those, every battery now is so darn expensive. I don't know if you've noticed the cost of batteries lately. Have you done price shopping on batteries? Like that alone, you could budget that in and it may be cheaper to buy the more expensive flash than the budget flash. Because of the cost of batteries.
2: I've definitely priced batteries and with four kids and especially my boys that like to come in and take batteries out of the battery drawer and then I need them and holy crap, I have no batteries anymore. Yes, they're extremely expensive. (laughs) And they're not the only thing you're gonna need batteries in, especially if you're taking your flash off of your camera.
0: Now, are there any flashes that utilize the backup batteries and things that work for your camera so that you don't have to buy like, separate special batteries for it
2: no but if you do use the larger fresh flashes and i'm meaning the strobes the really expensive ones they can either be powered by a battery or they can be powered by an outlet it just kind of depends on what you need these ones in general they're going to be only battery powered with your standard battery types
0: Well, an outlet kind of rules out outdoor adventures, although nature needs to catch up with the times and install some plugs.
2: Plug it in in a tree. There you go. You're all set. There you go. If only that would work. A
0: potato could power a clock. So
2: Not a flash. Well, not with that attitude, Wendy. (laughs) We're taking this flash off our camera, so we need two additional things. That's a remote and a receiver. The remote is either something that's going to be handheld, but typically it's going to slide into that hot shoe on the top of your camera. Now, which remote you get is going to be very specific to the camera you buy. So as you're doing this shopping, make sure it is compatible to the model of the camera you are using because it isn't a standard hot shoe across all of these different cameras that are out there. The receiver is going to get a signal when you push down the button on your camera, when you hit that shutter button. It'll send a signal to that receiver and say, oh, hey, it's time to flash. There's lots of different settings that you can go into with those receivers. You can set it so the flash goes up at the beginning of taking a picture. You can set it up so the flash goes off at the end of taking your picture, and depending on where your shutter speed is, that will have a different effect on the image in general. I don't wanna go into too much detail of that because we're going to how to use this stuff instead of necessarily what it's for. But keep in mind, there's a lot of stuff in those remote and receivers that's happening and you can really play with them in creating your image. The last thing we're gonna talk about is the modifiers. And this is probably the largest selection of any of the things in this list. We've talked about modifiers before. So this could be something as simple as a diffuser and you can have tiny diffusers or you can have up to great big soft boxes that use these flashes too. That's what I've been using if I want to take different pictures I will have large soft boxes that I use for food, still life. If I'm wanting to focus the light in a particular area, I have grids where I can focus that down. There's an entire world of changing the color, changing the shape, changing how harsh or soft that light is. And you can do all of that with these, I want to say, basic level flashes that you can pick up. You can do so many things with them and don't let the high price of the major strobes make you think that that's the better option to go because for a lot of people you can do so much in the realm of these flashes. I'd say give it a try if you enjoy doing some tabletop photography. You can also use these with people especially if you've got the light fairly close to them. The downside about these flashes is they don't have a modeling light. So if you're doing a lot with a lot of different people, then you'd want to step up to the larger, more expensive strobes. And what is a modeling light? That's a light that's on continuously. So you can see where that light is hitting your subject and essentially how it's going to be shaped.
0: Well, me and Mike will know all about modeling lights because as being both models... This is something we have to deal with constantly.
2: Okay. All, all the time. The time.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Totally. Exactly.
0: So the modifiers, Wendy, you said you can change the shapes and you can do the colors and all of those cool things, but you can't do that with the built-in flash. I assume there's no modifiers for built-in flashes on the camera?
2: Yeah, not really. And part of the problem with the built-in flash on your camera is it's only pointing straight ahead. So... You might be able to get a simple modifier that'll point it somewhat up, but then it's going to be in the way. It's going to be in the way of your lenses that need to move. They're there, but I don't really understand why because they make horrible pictures and you can't shape them. So one of the rules when it comes to lighting and how that light is going to look is what of the size of the light comparison to the shape of your subject. So if you have this teeny tiny little light in the front of your camera, it's going to cast some really harsh shadows. Think about every picture you've ever seen that's been done with the flash on the front of the camera. It's very harsh. It's very bright especially in somebody's face you might get the red eye going on from how it's bouncing through you can do on camera flash but do it with one of these larger flashes and be able to point it up or to the side so you have light hitting your subject but it's not so direct on that you're like oh wow they're washed out and the background is dark
0: awesome well wendy thank you so much for all this information on getting started in flash photography And that's it. Our 57th episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the amazing content on Destination Linux Network. Head to DestinationLinux.network. Check out all the amazing podcasts and YouTube partners available. There's so much to fill your brains with.
2: Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow.
1: We hope you enjoyed the show and you know what? We'll see you next time for another flashy titanium rated episode of Hardware Addicts. (laughs) You know what? Nailed
2: it! Wow. Uh.